0: morning. Uh, I'm Travis. I'm not Troy. Uh, If you weren't here last time, Troy and I are doing a little bit of a swap, uh, which ends today. So we'll see Troy next week on Christmas. I'll be back at my rightful place. He will be back here in his rightful place. Uh, I'm the pastor of Christ the King, Cambridge, uh, which as I understand is in fact the mother church for you all, which is strange because I've only been there since May. So it feels like I'm sort of back in time somehow and yet forward at the same time. But in any case, uh, it's wonderful to be with you again. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you this morning. And our sermon text um, for this morning's word is based out of Isaiah, uh, starting in Isaiah 53. So I would invite like you to stand as you are able. We'll read Isaiah 53, verses 3 through the end of the chapter, verse 12. and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please find your seats. Well, if you are just jumping in, we've been going through uh, Troy and I a series called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, uh, based off of the hymn that we sang this morning. In fact, we're wrapping it up now. The last will be on Christmas. Uh, But it's a hymn that draws out a lot of different themes of what the Christian life is really about, what our hope in Jesus is all about, that, that our King would come not just to be with us, but to do something for us and in us, to set us free from all the things that that make us sad, that make us afraid, all of the sin that breaks our hearts, that breaks the hearts of others, all of our pain our hope that this hymn brings out is that, that really all the things that we've been longing for that we would find ultimately in Jesus in a much truer and deeper and fuller way, that He would be not a disappointment when we see Him, but that in asking Him to come, He would be the fullness of what we have been hoping for. And so we've been bouncing around through a few different texts, largely in Isaiah and Psalms, to see something more than what our world can offer us at this time of year, to, to find a gift that won't be obsolete next year. That won't just be like the iPod that you brought that was shiny new in 2005, and now is deeply buried in a wastebasket somewhere, right? There would be a gift that endures, that's deep and rich, that would show us Jesus, the gift behind all gifts, the gift to end all gifts. And today we're in Isaiah 53, a passage uh, that draws us to see Jesus as the servant of the Lord that this passage speaks of, a servant who came to identify with us, not just in the good times, but in the bad times, in our sorrows and pains, as the hymn says, to taste our sadness. And not just to experience it, but also to heal our sadness through his own. And to look at that, I want us to see focus on three things this morning. There's way more than I could possibly hope to get to here. But first I want us to see this servant as Jesus. That's focus number one. Two. To then see Jesus, this servant, as the one who came to taste our sorrows. Look at verses three through nine for that. And finally Jesus as the servant who came to do something about our sorrows. Here are verses five and ten through twelve. So seeing Jesus as this servant, seeing Jesus come to taste our sorrows, and also come to do something about them. But before we get into those things that you value with me, let's pray and ask God to fill up our hearts as we open His word together. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers and that you answer. You are not a distant God who is far off. You are not the God who set all things in motion and then just went on a trip, but that you are intimately near, that our hearts have your heart in one, that you are always thinking of us, that you are so desirous of us, that you so love the world that you would send your only Son, the very heart of your heart to come and dwell with us and save us from all the pain and brokenness, not that you let in, but that we, let Even the brokenness that we would bring into your heart, you came to earth to be with us. So we ask, knowing that that is your heart, to come and be with us, that now, this morning, on this Sunday, the day when we gather, remembering that your Son came and rose and that we rise with Him, would you come now and be with us? Would you fill up our hearts in all the ways that you need, that we know you, you can only fill them, that, that are Hearts of emptiness, hearts of pain, hearts of anger, hearts of bitterness, hearts of longing. Holy Spirit, do what I cannot do and speak to these hearts that they might hear from you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have them open or a Bible app. or If you want in a few in front of you, we'll move through the text a little bit together. Uh, this morning. But starting with our first consideration, seeing the servant as Jesus. Uh, In scripture, when God speaks about his servant, he's talking more often than not about a whole people. He's talking about Israel. Uh, Leviticus 25, God speaks of Israel that way, as his servant. And as his servant, the people of God were to be those who would carry out his will for redemption of sin on the earth to carry out the redemption from death that sin brought about. So when Isaiah 52 is where actually this whole passage starts. We didn't read the whole thing, but if you went back a little farther, 52 verse 13 is where it starts. Uh, there the scripture says, be cold, in verse 13, my servant shall act wisely. You shall be high and lifted up, and the rest of this passage is talking about that servant. So when this passage talks about my servant, the Old Testament people of God would expect to hear this speaking about Israel, about them. Yet the picture that we have here is of an Israel, the servant, that does things that the ancient people of Israel never quite got around to doing. We never see Israel truly, even at their best moments, carrying the burdens, the iniquity the transgression of other people, never truly bringing healing even to themselves or to others. Even after they come back from that brutal, painful exile that we talked about the last time I was here, under Assyrian oppression, under the Babylonian oppression, even when they go through these disciplines of God, things that were meant to draw their hearts back to him, to become this servant that would shine with the light of God to the world, even in those moments go to the books of Nehemiah, Ezra, the people never quite get to looking like this. They never get to have this character. So it's puzzling. What does this mean if Israel never got It's also puzzling that it seems to talk about the servant healing Israel itself, not just healing the other nations. Verse 8 says... he was stricken for the transgressions of my people, not just for the world. There's also a brokenness in Israel that somehow this servant, who we would think of as Israel, is also coming to fix. How can Israel be both the problem and the solution at the same time? The text seems to be pushing us towards something else towards something new, towards towards even someone as this servant, not just a people group. It seems that this this servant that would come is somehow both of Israel, and yet the healer of Israel and the nations as well. And with that that pushing and that puzzling, what it's drawing us to to see is is certainly something other than just Israel, yet it doesn't give us a name. It doesn't say it's going to be John from Boston, right? It doesn't give us a time or a place. It doesn't give us a first and last name. It just leaves it as somewhat of a puzzle. And one commentator, Alec Meier, says this puzzle is actually left unexplained so that when the turn of events provides the explanation of this passage, we will know for certain that we stand in the presence of of this servant of the Lord. In other words, this text gives us what we need to identify, the one who would heal us, the one who would do these things for us, even if it doesn't tell us the name of who that person is. It gives us enough to know that person by what he is like, by his character, by what this servant does. And in some sense, this passage, as all the Old Testament does, and many times with the names of people, the names say thing about their character. So it says about who that person was. Our names tend to not mean as much, right? My name's Travis. I don't really know what that means. My parents didn't pick that with a deep significance. of like, he will always be a person who flies, or whatever it is that names can mean, right? Sometimes our names don't mean the same things. In ancient times, in Israel in particular, your name tended to mean something, especially when it was brought into Scripture. It was a description, a descriptor of who you were. And this passage, in some sense, by leaving that name out, seems to say that these things that this person will do, that's his name. He doesn't have a proper name. His character is his name. These things are how you will know who he is. What he is like is how you will know his name. You won't be able to confuse him. Because he shares the same name with someone else. No, these unique attributes and qualities and works and character will be unmistakably his. There will be no misnaming this person as someone else. And you even see people like John the Baptist in the New Testament... Asking if Jesus was this kind of person, if he was the Isaiah 53 servant that was to come. John's sitting there in prison, supposed to be the first one who saw Jesus come. He announced him as the Savior that was to come, this kind of servant. John baptizes him, and then now, some period of time later, John's sitting in prison with no hope of release, and he is thinking, is that, is that really the guy? Or is this how it's going to end up? That... The servant comes, but I'm still in my pain. I'm still in my sorrows. And so he sends his followers, his disciples, to go and ask Jesus and his disciple, are you the one that I should be expecting? Like, did I get this wrong? Did I read this wrong? Do I actually not know your name? And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, I am Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. Now he tells John's disciples, go and tell them what you see, what I am doing, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the mute speak, he tells them about his character, his name, his identity is his character. And through the lens of the New Testament, we see Jesus unequivocally in his character, in his actions, as the one who is revealed to be the one that this promise is talking about. The one who would both be of Israel, and yet somehow at the same time the healer of Israel and the world, being both God and man, being both a son of Israel and the son of God all at once. One who would be truly innocent and do no wrong, as this text says, but who would bear our burdens and our guilt, who would be loaded with blame that was not his at the cross in order to make intercession for us. There was no one who came like Jesus that was actually silent in front of their accusers, like a lamb is silent before the shearers or the slaughter. Jesus made no protest over his wrongful accusations, so that his lost sheep, you and me, rightly accused, he was silent so that we might be heard, instead of silenced by our there was no one who had come like Jesus to be oppressed and afflicted in this life and yet healed countless others just by his touch, just by his presence, let alone by his death. There was no one who came like Jesus to be disregarded and despised by his own people, by those that should have known him best, who was numbered with the wicked. Jesus was crucified with people who were rightly being put to death For their crimes, he is numbered with the transgressors and led in his death to a grave of a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, doing these things so that we who were poor in our lives might become rich through our deaths in Jesus Christ, that we might come alive in him. No one in Scripture or in history both claims to do these things and actually does them like Jesus. Nobody carries our sorrows. No one tastes our pain and even does something about it like Jesus. If you're not sure about that, even if you're not sure this morning, I know these things take time. And I am not here to try and tell you we can just close the book. All your questions should be answered. But I want to give you to push yourself just a little bit to say that if it's not Jesus, who else is going to do this? Who else is going to walk with you through life like that? Who else is going to step in when the problems weren't his, when the guilt wasn't his, when the fault wasn't his, when he could have spoken up for himself to save himself? Who is going to give himself over for you like this? What other religion is going to do that? What other self-works and improvement program is going to do that for you? Who is going to step in for you if it's not... I invite like you to think about that because Jesus came not just to step into these things and sit in them with us, but to do something about them. He came to both taste and to do, and that's what we're going to explore in these last two points here. To see what it looked like for Jesus to truly taste our sorrows, we're going to move through the text more thoroughly here in verses 3 through 9. Because I want us to think about, which the hymn invites us to do, what did it really mean? For him to taste our sorrow. Sometimes you taste something really bitter. Kids, if you're in here, you taste something that grown-ups say is delicious, and you think, no, disgusting. My kids will say that, <laughs> except they say, disgusting. <laughs> they haven't quite gotten the eat right? it, right? Yuck, right? What, what does it mean to actually taste something that is bitter, that feels painful? What did Jesus experience, even as this peacemaking servant, and, and what comfort can we draw from that by knowing... He experienced that with us and for us. I want us to run through these verses to see. Uh, Starting in verse 3, it says that tasting our sorrows meant being despised and rejected. Uh, Jesus was rejected and despised by the most well-thought-of, affluent, intellectual people of his day. Of his people, rejected by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. The best of the best of his day. The ruling class, the people with influence and power, hated him. He was most loved by the people that you did not want to be caught dead with. By the people that you didn't want to be associated with. You didn't want to take a selfie with them. You didn't want to be near them in any way, shape, or form. These were the people that flocked to Jesus. Jesus in his own day was despised and rejected. If you know what it feels like to be despised and rejected by the people that you would love to have approval from. Jesus knows what that feels. Feel alone. Pain. Verse 3 also says that he was familiar with suffering, with grief and pain. Maybe a, a better way to translate that, that grief word is, is actually disease. He was surrounded by people's pain and disease. We always in the gospel see people come in with their pain and their brokenness, even being carried by other people to get in front of Jesus with their disease. He is someone that is surrounded by a friend to those in pain on the cross he even knew what it was himself to have a body that is breaking down if you have a body that's breaking down if you have friends and family and pain and disease Jesus is a friend to those that are in pain Jesus knows himself what it is to have a body that's breaking down anybody got a body that's breaking down in here I'll take that as a, a sign that your bodies are breaking down. You <laughs> would love to say amen, but it's just, uh, we're all there, right? Uh, verse 4 says he carried our sorrows, which he which could also translate as, as mental pain or anguish. Right? These are, are depressive seasons, anxieties. He knows what it is to have a mind and a spirit that's weighed down by sadness. So much so that he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, a sign of extreme mental anguish. He felt the crush of a stress too great to bear. Do you have a stress too great to bear in your life? Jesus came to taste that. He knows what that feels like. Verse 5 says that being this servant to come and taste our sorrows looked like being pierced, wounded, crushed, chastised. On the cross, Jesus was all those things. Leading up to the cross, Jesus was all those things. He was stripped. He was beaten and flogged. He was nailed. He was made to carry his own method of execution to the place of his death. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spit on. He knew all these things. Jesus knows what it is to be assaulted and brutalized. Was someone in your family, someone you love, someone in your history, even yourself, has ever been assaulted. Jesus knows the deep places of our pain. Verse 7 says it looked like being oppressed and afflicted. Jesus knew what it was, not just to be assaulted, but to be abused, to be mistreated, to even be violated, as he was shamed in front of thousands of people in his own town. Do you feel shame this morning at something? even something that someone else has done to you, not something that you've done to yourself. Jesus knows what that feels like. He has come to taste our sorrows. Verse 8 says it looked like feeling harsh judgment. It says by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He knows what it's like to suffer under the heavy hand of a life-changing judgment that will change everything about your future forever. He knows what it's looked like, what it feels like to to look up at a tidal wave of consequences in your life and to just be crushed by. If you're staring at what feels like an unending cycle of waves and waves and consequences in your life, Jesus has stood in those waves before you. Verse 9 says, It looked like being taken to the grave among the wicked, to be misidentified as a genuinely bad person worthy of this kind of punishment and being cast out from society. Jesus knows what it is to live and die with a bad name. Have you had a bad reputation at some time? Have you gotten a bad report? Have you been disciplined for something at work, at school? Does your family on a bad name? Jesus knows what it is to live and die with a bad name, to be cast out. Yet for all of his tasting our sorrows, all of this, knowing the depths of our pain, verse 8 says people were totally unaware They were unconcerned. That's what verse 8 knew. It says, who considered, right? It's saying, who even thought that he was doing something for them while he was doing these things? No one cared. No one appreciated what he was doing on the cross. His hardest work went completely unrecognized. Imagine if if we could change the context a little bit. and Jesus' crucifixion, his magnum opus was just something that he tweeted, right? It would get zero levels zero retweets, zero mentions, no follows. No one noticed the greatest possible thing that he would ever do for people that had zero attention given to it. He came to taste our sorrows, not to the fanfare of our praise and our excitement and our enthusiasm, but to our cold, disinterest, and indifference. And in that, Through our being indifferent to him and his life's work, he comes to taste our sorrows in actually a truly different way. He comes to taste our sorrows not just as one of us, a fellow sufferer in a world broken by sin, but as God, who alone can truly taste the sorrow of our indifference to the one who made us the one who sustains us day in and day out. Jesus would taste our sorrow in the truest sense of what sin does to us, which is takes away all of our desire for and our appreciation of God. Sin teaches us to saw off the very limb that we are sitting on. Jesus came to feel that, to watch us do that face to face, to face humanity's indifference to his love and to just sit down with it. To feel us tell him, the one who made us, that you mean nothing to us. I don't know if you've ever had anyone treat you that way, talk to you that way. If you haven't, it is brutal. It breaks you. If you have, imagine willingly experiencing everyone you ever knew treating you that way. Not just one person, but everyone you ever saw, treating you with indifference. You would want to run away from that, to avoid that, but Jesus comes to step into the very center of grueling pain and indifference to him, because there is nothing that this servant would hide himself from to free people. I want you to hear that this morning, but there is nothing that Jesus would hide himself from to come and free you from your pain and sorrow. There is nothing that he would shield himself from if it meant having you. There is nothing that he will hold back if it means having you. Even if it means having you slap him in the face, walk away from him for decades, he will sit in the middle of that and experience that because if it means having you, to him, it is worth it. We're going to come back to that end. Amen. Thank you. Good a little witness in here. All right. We're going to come back to that at the end. But in no way does Jesus shield himself from our sorrow and its source. Rather, he comes to do something about it, to face it and to change it. Let's look at our last point here, uh, focusing on verses 5 and 10 through 12, how Jesus came, not just to experience these things with us, from us even, but to do something about it. How does he do that? How does he take our sorrow, not just in our suffering, but even our very indifference to him and change that. Verse 5 says, it's by his wounds we are healed. That's how we does it. By his wounds. But how, how does that work? How does somebody else getting hurt possibly help me? It seems strange at best. It also seems strange that it doesn't just say, by his wounds we are forgiven. That's what so much of the Old Testament sacrificial system was about, was forgiveness. That these things were offered to God as a token of atonement, of forgiving. It says we are not just forgiven, we are also healed. That means changed, right? If you are healed from a disease, then you no longer have the complications that go along with that disease. You are changed. You're not forgiven of cancer, you are healed of cancer. Jesus comes not to forgive just, but to heal by his wounds. And in fact, we need him to do that and not just forgive us, because you can forgive someone, you probably have this experience in your life, but that doesn't change them. They might still hurt you. They might still be that same person. We are called, actually, as Christians, to forgive others, whether they change or not. That doesn't mean you trust them in the same way. It may mean that you can't even be in relationship with them anymore. But we are called to have a heart posture towards others of forgiveness. But forgiveness and healing do not necessarily go together. Yet here, God is promising healing through this servant, not just forgiveness. Not just bearing our transgressions, not just bearing our iniquity, but actually healing us. And something about him being wounded will actually change us. This text is promising that somehow this servant's wounds will close our wounds. That the healer's wounds will heal our wounds. That it will close them. Not just forgive them, but heal them. Because our wounds will actually transfer to him. They would leave us. Our wounds would be closed. There is this life-giving exchange where Jesus takes our wounds and our wounds close. And from him, we have his righteousness animating us, making us new, beautiful, lovely. Verse 11 says he makes us righteous. This is what we have in him, this great exchange, and to illustrate this a little bit, I want to I want to use uh, a reference that actually Tim Keller used, referencing another pastor. This is like layers of layers of pastors. Uh, that a, a pastor, Donald Barnhouse, in Philadelphia years ago, while he was still in the prime of his life, his wife died, and he was driving his children to their mother's funeral, and on the way they're stopped at a light, and a big truck pulls up next to them, and the shadow of the truck, because of where the sun was, covers the car completely. And as a good pastor, he is always thinking about teachable moments for his kids, and he turns to his kids and asks, would you rather be hit by the truck or the shadow of the truck? Okay, it was actually the youngest kid that answered and said that it makes obvious sense that you would rather be hit by the shadow. He said, okay, I want you to realize something from this. Everything's going to be okay. Jesus was hit by the truck, so mommy only has to go through the shower. Everything's going to be okay. This is what's true of this sermon in our lives. Jesus was hit by the truck, run over by death for us, bearing our sins and the consequence of it so that our death, our pain, would pass to him so that he is hit by them, and is taking that hit, death merely becomes a shadow for us. It can't truly hurt us anymore because we have been given something that it doesn't have authority Jesus takes our sorrow on the cross and gives us his healing, his unbreakable life in the resurrection. By his wounds, we are healed. Death becomes a shadow for us because it became a true crushing reality for him. His wounds close our wounds. What are your wounds today? Your anxieties and your fears... Your jealousy and your envy, your anger and your bitterness, your impatience, your harshness, your unkindness, your selfishness. These wounds in Jesus Christ are made to close. That though they may be closing in our experience, that in the eyes of God they are closed and only one day will it be true before our eyes what he sees now. That they are done, they are put to rest, and the experience of these things are only the last vapors of the breath of something that no longer holds power in your life. That God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, has come to do something about our wounds great, unimaginable cost to himself. And yet, for that great exchange where he gives us his righteousness, and he takes our wounds on himself, he is somehow not coming out in the red for all that. He doesn't come out as a loser because of these things. Verse 11 and 12 draw our attention to this. It says, Out of his anguish, his soul shall see and be satisfied. Out of his anguish, he would be satisfied says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and that also he shall see his offspring, that that for all this pain that he will go through, for all the healing that he would do through his own pain, that actually he would gain for having carried all of our burdens. How can that be? How can you suffer such an unimaginable torture and pain to carry all the sins of all who would believe to be crushed under these things, and yet somehow say it was worth it? Scripture gives us the conviction that God's prize in redemption is not just his rightful glory as our Redeemer for being one who would save, but that God's prize, the reward that he has in redemption, is actually you. You. Having us back is worth it. It's the recovery of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons of Luke, chapter 15, when Jesus tells all those parables. The joy of God is to look on his inheritance as his gain. And that inheritance, do you know that, is you, the people of God. That's his gain. He goes through all of this because of you. He thinks that you are worth it. Not because you were beautiful, not because you were strong, not because you were great and worth it. He loved you not when you were lovable, but when you were unlovable. He knew you in that state, and that's when he loved you. You are what he gains back. The price he paid is not a sunk cost. But to him it is a bargain to get back what was stolen. His image who we were made in his image, to have us back, he would pay any price to have that back, to get you back. That's the God of Christmas. That's the kind of way that he gives to us. And in light of that, I want to invite you to do a couple of practical things to, to help us lean into Jesus being the servant, savior, and healer. I want to invite you in a couple of different ways to let him carry your sorrows. Let him carry your burdens. Let him carry your, your sins. Let him carry your problems for you. Because the text does not say that you hear this, you understand that the servant will come, and then you figure it out, and you put your backpack on, and you carry all your junk. No, it says, he bore our burdens. He carried our sorrows. It is not an American way of rugged individualism and you do it yourself. It is, God comes and carries for you. So I want to invite you, as we add into Christmas, to let him carry first your indifference. We all go through these things. We, we talked about that earlier this morning. There are times when we just don't want to be with God. Let him carry that for you. Say, God, I just don't really feel that drawn to you. Let him carry your indifference. You don't have to jumpstart your own heart. You don't have to fabricate love for him. He gives love for you, to you. Let him carry your indifference. If you don't know Jesus, ask Him to say, "I'm actually a completely dead weight here. I have no inclination for You." That's the moment when He finds you. Let Him carry your indifference when you feel like complete dead weight. Let Him carry your your sin, your iniquity. Throw that to Him. Don't get yourself cleaned up and then come to church. Don't get your life together and then say, I'm going to become a Christian then. I'm going to start following Jesus in a new way when I kind when of get myself in order. I'm going to start sharing with people in a real way when it finally got me together. He came to carry our burdens. He made us to be a people who have wounds that we bring to our Savior. He made us to be those people who are the unloved and unlovely of society, to be drawn to Him to show the world what it's like to have a friend in Jesus. Let Him carry... Your wounds. You are healed. You are forgiven as we talked about. You may not see that today, but it is true. Let him carry those things for you. Let him carry your sorrows. Lastly, it says he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. Don't carry your sorrows alone. I'm sure there are some of us in here that are going through some real heartache right now. Don't carry those things alone. Let God walk in those things with you. Some of the sweetest moments in my Christian life have been when I've been in my deepest pain and I've sensed the presence of God sitting with me. And just being near me. Take your heart to God, run to Him, be in, in prayer, in the Word, in Christian community. You don't have to tell everybody everything, right? You don't have to air out all the pain in front of everybody, but don't suffer alone. The very evidence of this text is that God means for you not to suffer that Jesus carried. That's what he came to do. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a few moments to reflectively just speak to God in your hearts about the things that we talked about this morning. I'll give you a few prompts here and then I'll, I'll close this by inviting us to pray the Lord's Prayer. But just thank God for, for loving us so much that he would come and experience our sorrows with us. That he would experience the sorrows that you felt in your life. Talk to him about those things, about, about the ways maybe that you've been indifferent to him. The ways that you've just not cared at all if he's there or not. And ask him to carry you. Let's take a few moments and pray. Lord, we ask that you would indeed be our good shepherd and carry us forever. Would you teach us to bring our hearts to you, our burdens, our sins, our indifference, our sorrows, that you might carry them. Would you teach us to speak all of our life as a prayer to you? May we pray now as you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day of our daily life, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We get to come now to a, a tangible expression, maybe the most tangible expression, this side of heaven, what it means. Jesus, we need serve to come and carry our